Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. We watched a really bad movie just now, and we're going to we're gonna get to it soon. Ugh. I was just thinking, you know, this is a movie that I saw very early in lockdown, and when I watched it, I thought, this will be perfect for the podcast. And it took until now, and, you know, watching it again today, I was trying to figure out what exactly was my enthusiasm, because it is so painful so difficult to get through and i made me realize that in terms of the bad movies that we do i'd probably rather watch a dinesh d'souza movie because one of those is kind of all killer no filler it's got funny shit happening every second but this movie like it's got a funny premise it's got a lot to talk about but also you just spend a lot of time seeing that premise over and over again and a lot of just hollywood bullshit too yeah it's the middle brow quality of shit like this or the attempted middle brow quality that makes it so uh, difficult to sit through. Like, I would rather watch any of those movies we've seen that are bankrolled by, like, an evangelical film company or something, yeah. you know? Like that that incredible one where it was the mayor of the town wants to bring back Christmas. And... Oh, yeah, Kirk Cameron saving Christmas, no, no, right? No, 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 that was, that was a different one. There was, I believe it was called Last Ounce of Courage. Right, Last Ounce of Courage, And then the, the ACLU guy, played by Fred Williamson, <laughs> like, comes into town because he's kind of a carpetbagger and he's, like, on a single-handed mission to just destroy Christmas wherever it pops up. <laughs> yeah, see, those movies are fun because, like, the lib characters always basically have horns and they're like, we must destroy Jesus. But this, <laughs> like, mo- this movie, Falling Down, by the way, this is one of those movies that, in addition to all the funny stuff, just has tons of boring Hollywood stuff about, you know, Robert Duvall and his wife or, you know, the, the police department and, you know, just boring shit. And like all those movies, it's incredibly reactionary, but unlike all those movies, you know, it's a Hollywood Hollywood film, so it won't just rip the mask off and lean into that identity, and it has to kind of cover its bases all over the place, and so you don't even get, like, a fun reactionary movie yeah. out of it. Which is interesting to talk about on this podcast, but not much fun to watch, folks. <laughs> anyway, we're going to get to the movie Falling Down shortly. Uh, I just want to talk to my buddy Luke about the last week that I had, because I had a pretty good week. I felt pretty happy this week, and I realize it's because this feels to me like the first post-pandemic week. I'm sure a lot of people are yelling into their phones right now, the pandemic's not over, you fool. But the thing is, I went to a movie with a friend this week. I went to a movie by myself this week. I went to a bar with my girlfriend and we invited some friends over, just very spontaneously. After I came back from the movie this week, my girlfriend also had friends over and I just kind of hung out with them for a bit. And we went went to a coffee shop. And here's the thing, it didn't feel novel. It all felt like life before the pandemic. It didn't feel like any of these events had huge symbolic weight to them anymore. Which in itself, ironically enough, probably felt novel. Yeah, so I don't know. I've been feeling feeling great. And it came at a perfect time because what I've also been feeling lately is 30-something malaise. (laughs) Do you ever feel this? Like there comes a point in your 30s where I think you definitely have to make an effort to continue being interesting. (laughs) (laughs) or continue to be engaged in the world because the whole world is working against you. You're no longer, you know, in a university dorm. 
You're no longer seeing people all the time. Uh, you're, you're stuck in traffic. You're McDon- <laughs> they won't give you McDonald's breakfast. Yeah, exactly. Like the possibilities are more limited. The horizons are more limited. Oftentimes you can't, you know, just go out whenever you want to. You've got responsibilities and stuff like that. Do you ever feel this? Yeah, I know what you mean, of course. Yeah. Although I do think it's possible that the 30-something malaise you're describing is actually, at least in part, just a sort of COVID malaise. I know, I've been thinking about that a lot because the pandemic struck more or less as I entered my 30s and two years have passed. Man, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, I think the <laughs> pandemic struck the same month that I turned 31 or yeah, something. Exa- yeah, exactly. When it ends or when it when you're coming out of it, you're not so sure how much of this is the pandemic and how much of this is just, oh yeah, you become boring in your 30s. You don't you don't do anything anymore. Negotiating that has been very strange. How do you counteract this malaise? Well, I've been out doing things as well and uh I like to think that uh, all or most of the feeling you're describing uh really has more to do with COVID than it does with uh <laughs> being the advanced age of 32. <laughs> But I like what you said about this week. Uh, very much felt the same for me. I went to a movie with a friend at the uh, at the Lightbox earlier this week, where I don't think I'd been for about two years. Went to a bar after, was able to sit outside because they had a big fire, even though it was freezing. Another close friend of mine, who's been the most COVID cautious person I know, told me he's officially entered his YOLO phase. <laughs> so it feels like something definitely has broken there for the better. I did karaoke this week. I had a microphone in front of me. Now they did sanitize the mic between songs, which is good. But also there were so many times during the pandemic when I thought about karaoke and I thought, I can't believe I I once used a communal microphone. I think we've talked about this before, but uh, I'm not a karaoke guy. I can't stand it. You, I know you're big on karaoke. Well, you should know that I, I really killed it doing Starman this week. <laughs> really hit those high notes. So I was proud of myself. Yeah, right. Who says that being in your 30s means you have to be boring? Am I right, folks? <laughs> Well, folks, you've been a nice and patient audience, but, you know, there's another man, probably in his 40s, who is also experiencing a sort of malaise, and his name is D-Fans. I I think his character has another name, too. And he's played by Michael Douglas in Joel Schumacher's Zeitgeist Humping 1993 drama, Falling Down. Bill Foster is an ordinary man. Where are you going? Going home. Not this way or not. Why not? Metro rail construction, that's why not. Living in the everyday world. I don't suppose you'd have a couple of bucks you could give me. It wouldn't really help me out. If you give me your address, I'll mail it back, honest. A patient man. Can I help you? Yes, I'd like a ham and cheese womlet, wham fries. I'm sorry. We stop serving breakfast at 11.30. Who's running out of patience? I guess a change for the folks. A peaceful man. Lord says, I have to buy something. Who's about to be pushed. 85 cent, 85 cent. Hasn't given me enough money for the phone call. A little too far. Warner Brothers presents. Say, would you get off my golf course? Yeah. The story of an everyday guy who refused to take it one more day. So we got a nutcase with a bag full of guns. He's in Hollywood right now, and he's heading west. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but there's other people waiting to use the phone here. Now, if you go up against this guy, be careful. 
Before we talk about what this movie specifically is, Will, you had an observation while we were watching it, which I think is really useful for situating sort of what kind of middle brow movie this is. You were imagining a hypothetical critic in the early 90s reviewing this movie. Imagine you're a newspaper critic, okay? And, you know... You, you write for the second largest daily newspaper in St. Louis or something. That's right. And, you know, normally you're going to see movies like uh, My Girl or The Page Master or Ghost Dad, you know, whatever is out that week and you know you're doing your consumer report stuff but then every now and then a movie comes along that is an explosive cultural commodity something that is very serious and something that you as a critic have a responsibility to kind of midwife into the world like you've got to tell audience you've got to prepare audiences for this and situate this thing for audiences yeah this thing you've got in your hand you've gone you've been to an advanced screening and you see right away this baby's a cultural powder keg and i gotta i gotta diffuse it before it gets to the general public but what's (laughs) really important to emphasize is that this movie is important okay this movie is about things that people really care about right now yeah we're not really sure why but it has just the right sort of leaden tone and pretense to being an important movie movie that as a middle brow film critic it tickles me in just the right way and uh, I'm gonna treat it as such but you know it's like it's ambiguous too like it flirts with ideas that are a little weird a little radical even and you've got to prepare audiences for that let them know that it's not necessarily like the bad people only who should be watching this movie and you can imagine the film critic going into the press screening you know like the reporter at the crime scene you know flashing the press badge like excuse me i'm, I'm here on official business very solemnly <laughs> make way i'm a film critic <laughs> <laughs> and you know uh, other examples of this genre might be like joker or the passion of the christ well, okay <laughs> the, like putting a quality aside fahrenheit 9-11 you know these are the kinds of movies this is when the film critic goes to work okay this This is when the film critic really has responsibility. Now, I'm sorry that we've kind of made him a punching bag on the podcast because I do kind of like the guy and he's done a lot of good writing. And Lord knows I've spent a lot of time reading him. Uh, But Roger Ebert reviewed this movie Falling Down. Three stars? Yeah, three stars. It is (laughs) one of his funniest reviews ever. (laughs) A lot of the reviews for Falling Down are going to compare it to earlier movies about white men who go berserk. Taxi driver, right? Joe, for example, or Death Wish. Some will even find it racist because the targets of the film's hero are African-American, Latino, and Korean, with a few whites thrown in for balance. Both of those approaches represent a facile reading of the film, which is actually about a great sadness which turns into madness and which can afflict anyone who is told, after many years of hard work, that he is unnecessary and irrelevant. No one tells him this. The movie stars Michael Douglas in a performance of considerable subtlety and some courage as a Los Angeles man who a few years ago thought he had it all figured out. He was a well-paid defense worker. He had a wife and child. The sun came up every morning and what was there to worry about? But already there must have been danger signals. And we learn later that he had flashes of violence against his wife and child, that he is divorced, that a court order prevents him from approaching them. Later he writes, because the character is white and many of his targets are not, the movie could be read as racist. I prefer to think of it as a reflection of the real feelings that a lot of people who, lacking the insight to see how political and economic philosophies have affected them, fall back on easy scapegoating. 
If you don't have a job, and the Korean shop owner does, it is easy to see him as the villain. It takes a little more imagination to realize that you lost your job because of the greedy and unsound financial games of the go-go junk bond years. Okay, that's so funny because the movie actually is not looking at things that holistically. <laughs> it's not looking at the financial system that leads to the dis- it, Like, the movie is literally, what if Taxi Driver starred Dennis Leary? Yeah, if you want to place this movie, imagine a movie that follows kind of the very loose template of Taxi driver but is also trying to be a sort of reactionary version of do the right thing uh the review ends with ebert saying falling down does a good job of representing a real feeling in our society today it would be a shame if it is seen only on a superficial level so ebert handled some of the plot for us but we should go through it a little bit michael douglas from wall street i don't know why i said that Uh, I just like the idea of giving people context for who Michael Douglas is. It seemed funny. Folks, you know him. You love him. He's Michael Douglas. Very famous actor. (laughs) He stars as William Foster, an ordinary white-collar worker who finds himself caught in traffic one day. A burning traffic. I mean, the movie's visual style and much of its tone and certain of its structural elements are derivative of do the right thing, I think it's fair to say, which is very funny to say. (laughs) That's I like the idea of, like, Rush Limbaugh's do the right thing. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he's in traffic, and the heat and the road rage, it all finally gets him to a boiling point. So he leaves his car, and he goes on, I guess, a rampage of sorts. (laughs) He goes on a sort of, well, he later says that he's not a vigilante, but he goes on a sort of angry white man, won't take it anymore, tirade across Los Angeles. Right, and that's why I said this movie follows the, you know, loose template of some something like Taxi Driver, but it does nothing to actually earn comparisons to a movie like that because in Taxi Driver, we spend a lot of time with Travis Bickle. We get inside his head. There's a whole arc that culminates, you know, in this violent crescendo at the end. This movie is basically a man stuck in traffic who then immediately gets out of his car and goes to a variety store and just hurls racist epithets at the Korean store owner because the guy is trying to charge him 85 cents for, for a Coke or something. And he just immediately, you know, he doesn't have 85 cents or something. And he he gets into some very racist stuff like you people come over, you people come over here and you're charging me too much for a Coke. (laughs) So eventually the irate owner uh, tries to draw a bat in self-defense. And then, you know, he uses the bat to just like bust up the store. But he's not a thief. Michael Douglas assures the man he's not a thief. He just wants to pay a fair amount, a fair amount. I want to pay a fair amount for this Coke. Right. So the movie really is trying to be, as, you know, Ebert clearly read it, this kind of, you know, meditation on alienation and ennui in contemporary American life and how, you know, American culture is at a boiling point and, you know, we may not like what we see, but we, we shouldn't look away. But the film does nothing to earn any of this stuff because literally Michael Douglas goes from being stuck in traffic to just, like, destroying a, a, a store and hurling racist epithets at a guy. And then in the next scene, he goes to kind of loiter in an empty lot or something and some incredibly stereotypical, like, Hispanic gang gangsters come up to him, you know, call him a gringo or whatever. He gets into a fight with them and, you know, they don't expect this gringo to fight back, but boy, does he ever fight back. Well, you know, Luke, some might see this as racism, but I actually see it as an example of the kind of easy scapegoating that people do when they don't realize the political and economic systems that disadvantage them. (laughs) No, folks, I'm kidding. It it is literally, it is literally scapegoating because when he's in the convenience store, 
you are 100% supposed to be on his side. Yes. You are supposed to be like, you know what? Yes, those people come over here and they charge us 25 cents too much for that can of Coke. <laughs> and and a man can't even sit on a bench without being harassed by these, you know, these ma- gang Mexican, Mexican yeah. <laughs> gangsters, you know, who can't. Like, we try to be tolerant, but they just won't stick to their own neighborhood, you know. That is literally what the movie is doing. But it's not it's not just racist, because this movie has many other grievances with society. Yeah, and this is, this is why this movie is ultimately so funny, and why it's so oddly paced, because you already said that there's not really a build-up to any of these acts of violence, but what's also funny is there also isn't, like, a linear progression Aggression to them either. So, I mean, and you know, this scene we just described, I mean, he's attacked violently by these guys. But then in one of the, the next scenes, he just goes to a McDonald's and he asks for McDonald's breakfast. And they're like, you know, the very chirpy people behind the counter are like, oh, uh, sorry, sir. It's after 1130. And he looks at his watch and it's like 1133 or something. And then he just pulls a gun on the McDonald's. Yeah. I mean, McDonald's do be like that, you know, it's like they do be not serving you breakfast. Yeah. And it's like, what a profound statement on alienation and contemporary on the malaise of contemporary American life. It's like, can't even get McDonald's breakfast after 1130. I do love this scene because this is when the movie just becomes full Dennis Leary, not having to do with any real social. It's just like, haven't you noticed that McDonald's is annoying? when they won't give you a, a, a fucking breakfast McMuffin. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole bit There's a whole bit in the scene where he's pointing to what the burger looks like on the poster and he's like, see, it's big and juicy. Yeah. Does this burger that he's holding in his hand, does this burger look big and juicy to you? And I mean, it's literally like a what's the deal with, you know, the... Fa- Folks, the fast food looks different on the sign than it looks in your hand. You seen this? You heard about this? So, so far, his grievances are Koreans coming over charging us too much at their convenience stores, uh, Hispanic gangbangers who won't leave us alone, and uh, the damn McDonald's and how it's not good to its customers. There's another scene, though. As you can sense, this movie is creating a sort of tapestry of Americana. America and her ills. And one of my favorite scenes, and every scene's my favorite scene, but one of my favorite scenes is when Michael Douglas is just in a playground somewhere. He's in a park. Yes. And he sees, like, he just passes. It's like a kaleidoscopic vision of problems in America. There's a guy, there's there's somebody who's suffering from AIDS sitting there and he's got a sign that says, like, we've been abandoned. Uh, what what else is in there? There's like a... Cu- well, there's just like a homeless guy that asks him for money and he yells at him to get a job. Oh, I, I love the homeless guy. There's another homeless guy who sees Michael Douglas, like, carrying two suitcases and he's like, hey, man, you probably have a house. You probably have all this. I don't have anything. I don't have anything. I should at least have one of your two bags. And he's like, okay, yeah, have my briefcase. And he's like, what? There's nothing in here. What the fuck is this? And that's the movie letting the character off the hook for being obviously bourgeois. It's them saying, you can still like this guy, even though he's middle class, because those those poor people, like, you like know. Like this guy, he gave this guy a briefcase and the guy still wasn't happy. It's like, they're not, you know, taking a, give him a hand up, not a hand out, you know. <laughs> uh, but Michael Douglas does get angry at rich people later. The last half of this movie, the movie's just sort of like scattershot, like, okay, what other targets can we get? Uh, how about we, he goes on a golf course and he like shoots a guy and... That scene doesn't make any sense because he's walking through the golf course and they're like, sir, you can't be here. And then, yeah, he like, what, 
beats one of them up and then the guy has a heart attack and he shoots their, you know, little golf cart or something. And he's like, don't you wish you'd let me walk through the golf course? And then it's like, what kind of grievance is this supposed to capture? Don't you hate it when you're trying to randomly walk through a golf course and they won't let you? There's another scene where he's walking through some rich neighborhood and he's yelling at the pool boy, like these fucking rich people, they're putting up barbed wire fences and we're getting our hands bloody just because we want to take a look. Yeah, he he points to the house and, and he says, who lives here? And the guy says, a doctor. And he says, what kind of doctor? And the guy replies, it's a plastic surgeon. And oh. he's so outraged that it's like, it's not even a real doctor. He's like, I got into the wrong racket. Rick, have you ever heard the expression, the customer is always right? Yeah. Yeah, well, here I am, the customer. That's not our policy. You have to order something from the lunch menu. I don't want lunch. I want breakfast. Yeah, well, hey, I'm really sorry. Yeah, well, hey, I'm really sorry, too. Fucking gun! Oh, no, 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 let's get organized. Oh, 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 oh. Calm down. Just calm down, everybody. Just sit down. Sit down over there. Hey, 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 hey. No, 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 no. You sit down there and you finish your lunch. Come on. Now, the movie sets up a sort of dichotomy between the Douglas character and another character played by Robert Duvall. He's like a sergeant at the police force or something. You know, it's his last day before retirement. He used to be a cop on the beat. He used to love that. But his crazy shrew of a wife, played by Tuesday Weld, is like, she's crazy. And she's always on the phone with him. Ooh, ooh, ooh. She won't stop nagging him about how he's in danger at work, even though it's his last day and he's not on the street. Yeah. And we're supposed to be very irritated on his behalf. And this is the feminization of the American male, folks. This man, he should be out there. He should be cracking skulls. He should be the bad lieutenant out there right now. Yeah, the movie sets up this dichotomy between Michael Douglas and Robert Duvall, where it's like, look, don't get us wrong. Robert Duvall it represents the better kind of masculinity, the, the law-abiding kind of masculinity. You know, he just, he just takes it on the chin. He's the strong, silent type. You know, he has all these grievances in his life, but he doesn't go out and do all this bad stuff. But having, you know, covered its bases there, it's also constantly telling you all this bad stuff that's happening, folks, that wouldn't be happening if there were more cops on the beat, okay? <laughs> Michael Douglas's ex-wife, who he's constantly stalking and harassing, played by Barbara Hershey, keeps trying to get cops to help her out. And at one point, this world-weary cop says to her, Tell you what, ma'am, if you want more help, next time there's a ballot initiative about having fewer cars on the beat, vote no, okay? Now, my favorite scene in the movie, and I think the scene, the scene that more than any other made me want to do this movie on the podcast, and which I think pushes this movie beyond being merely bad and into reprehensible, yes. is when, you know, Michael Douglas, he's decided essentially to divorce himself from society. And so what do you do? You go to a survivalist store. Yeah, he goes to like, survivalists are us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he goes to Herman's military antique basically yeah. <laughs> well maybe i'll get some new boots yeah of course this is what this guy would do he's like well what should i well i should look the part at least i should get some new boots <laughs> and this store is run by a kind of like wacko skinhead militiaman type who you know he's terrible to the customers there are two gay customers who are in and he's like hey get out of here yeah yeah you know various slurs uh, there's a female police officer who comes in and he's like, hey, I can't believe they got broads on the force, you know, that kind of thing. And he takes a liking to Michael Douglas for some reason. And he's like, hey, listen, come down here into the basement and I'm going to show you the real stuff, the good stuff with the stuff that I don't show just anyone. Well, the reason he takes a liking to Michael Douglas is because he 
fingers him as the guy who like beat beat up the Korean shop owner. Right. So he he feels instant racial solidarity for toward him. So he takes him down to the basement and he shows him his collection of Nazi memorabilia and he's like, look at all these bullets. Think of all the you know you know. He says uh, some very uh, homophobic, some anti-Semitic. Uh, the N bomb is dropped uh, a couple of times, and the minute the N bomb is dropped, you know, okay, this is a step beyond what the Michael Douglas character will allow. And <laughs> and even though this is the darkest scene in the movie. It then proceeds to become far and away the funniest because <laughs> having set up this Michael Douglas character, who by this point, we've already seen him like beat up a shop owner and hurl racist epithets for no reason. You know, he gets attacked by the Hispanic gang and then he takes all of their guns and he shoots a bunch of them. So he's walking around town armed to the teeth, going into an army surplus store to prepare for like the, the coming race war, basically. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> and then and then when he meets an actual Nazi, have with this scene, the Nazi tries to give him a grenade launcher and is like, yeah, man, you could take out a jumbo jet with this thing. I want you to have it. And Michael Douglas is like, why do you want me to have this, sir? We are not the same. We are not the same. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and doesn't he go off on a riff about freedom? He says, I'm an American and you're just a freak. Yeah. I, I want to debate the issues. He basically says that. He's like, he's like, you and I just disagree. And this is why the movie is reprehensible because Martin Scorsese and Paul Schrader Say what you like about them. They are not pulling this shit. If you think Travis Bickle is a Nazi, they're fine with that. In fact, that's the whole point of this. This man is a Nazi or he's flirting with it. How bad is he? How much of the bad stuff do you agree with? Can you disentangle this stuff? That's the whole point. But then to say, oh, no, but he's not a Nazi. Utter artistic cowardice. Yeah, the film has Michael Douglas do all this totally reprehensible stuff, and then it's also trying to get us to identify with him in some way. We saw him do a hate crime already. Uh, It's like the first thing he does. (laughs) He's stuck in traffic, and then his instinct is to immediately go into a hate crime. And that's not until... I don't know, you know, 20 or 25 minutes left in the movie that we get the inevitable heavy-handed monologue about how, you know, I used to have a job, I used to mean something or or whatever. And what's so funny about this, okay, is early in the movie, there was a shot of the skyline, which turned out to be LA, but my instinct was, okay, it's Detroit. And the backstory here is that he used to work, you know, he used to be an auto worker. Should have been, should have right? been that. It's And so it's a, you know, it's a kind of awkward parable for deindustrialization and masculinity or something like that. But no, it turns out his background is that he was a, a pencil pusher in the defense industry, okay? So this movie was this movie came out in 1993 and he specifically was involved in the creation of missiles, okay? And when I hear that in a movie, alarm bells go off. I'm thinking, "Oh, that's bad, right? <laughs> like we're supposed to not like that he made missiles." But no. Uh, the implication <laughs> is that the end of the Cold War has led to kind of the demilitarization of America, which, by the way, citation needed. It's 1993. (laughs) There's literally a war that's just happened. And now Robert Duvall is behind a desk, for God's sake. He should be out there cracking skulls. That's right. And so it's like they could have made Michael Douglas, you know, an ex-blue-collar worker or something. But no, it's layoffs at Lockheed Martin that caused this, you know, this ramp... 
this completely unprovoked rampage throughout the streets of Los Angeles. And you know, there's a scene in the second half. First of all, this movie is incompetently structured. It should have had the Nazi confrontation as the climax. That should have been the thing that it built to, where he was like, is is this what I really am? Am I the bad guy? I mean, there's a version of that scene, but it should have been the Nazi scene. No, they put that halfway through the movie to diffuse any thoughts you might have had going into the second half. But there's a scene in the second half where he's got this rocket launcher that he got from the military store and he's frustrated. You know, one of the many grievances he has is with, you know, those lazy workers at the construction site who traffic is all tied up because they're renovating the sewers. He, 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 got, he yells at them that they're doing unnecessary repairs because, you know, they want to they wanna justify their budget. They got a fat contract from the, the fat cats over in Sacramento. Oh, man. Folks. Folks, <laughs> don't get me started. And, and so he shoots a fucking rocket. He destroyed... <laughs> He, he makes it so that there's some necessary construction that needs to happen. <laughs> Probably tie up traffic for another two years. But as you pointed out, his complaint could just as easily be like, there could, there's an alternative version of this scene where he's back, he gets back in a car and then the roads are shitty and he's <laughs> complaining about like decaying infrastructure. It's like, where are the construction workers? Yeah. And also like all these construction workers, if you cut that budget, you lay them off, maybe they'll turn into Michael Douglas, you know, maybe they'll be uh, ruined by this socio-political and environment that has led to this angry man. The film climaxes with Michael Douglas reaching Barbara Hershey's house, hoping to finally see his daughter. Duval is on the case. You know, it's his last day on the job, but he's trailing this guy. There's a big confrontation on the pier uh, between Michael Douglas and his family, and then Douglas and Duval. Duval's holding the gun at him, and he says, maybe you're the bad guy. And Douglas is like, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm the bad guy, which again, the movie has done nothing to earn. In this movie's eyes- He's been the bad guy from like the second scene in the movie. In this movie's eyes, the only bad thing he's done was terrorize his family. Uh, All the other stuff he did was totally fine. And even the terrorizing his family, the movie's like, you can't blame him for that. A man's got to see his daughter. A man's got to see his wife. Uh, Tuesday Weld better get back in that kitchen and make dinner for Robert Duvall when he gets home. Yeah, so he can get out on the beat and enforce the law. I love that the movie is always covering its own ass on every offensive thing it does because Robert Duvall has an arc as well where finally he's on the phone with his wife and he's like, get in that kitchen, make me dinner and I want it there when I get home. And again, we're supposed to be on his side. You're supposed to be like, yeah, yeah. But then there's a there's a retirement party where somebody makes a joke about his wife and he's like, what did you say about my wife? And he punches him, throws him in the cake. So like the, the movie knows you think, well, that, that maybe that's sexist, but it's like, no, he stands up for his wife too. He loves his wife. Yeah, this movie can be accused of doing something that I think it's safe to call nuance mongering. <laughs> it has a reactionary subtext or not even a subtext. It is an incredibly reactionary film. And yet because it's a middle brow Hollywood movie directed by Joel Schumacher and knows that it is a heat-seeking missile aimed at a certain kind of middle-brow film critic (laughs) who's going to say nice things about it. Because of that, it has to constantly erect these fake counterweights to all of the reactionary things that it does. As heat-seeking missiles goes, you know, it found Roger Ebert... With exactly the same precision that the missile fired by Michael Douglas found that construction site. So in the final scene, Michael Douglas puts his hand in his pocket like he's going to pull out a gun. Duvall shoots him because he has to. Pulls it out. It's a fake gun. This was a suicide, essentially. 
Michael Douglas falls into the water and Robert Duvall looks over the pier at him. Sort of there's, admi- some, there's some sad music that plays and it's like, ah. He's sort of admiring him. It's like, you know, there goes, you know, you may disagree with his tactics, but there goes a man. Like, because <laughs> it's like, this is the way of the samurai. Like, you, you see your opponent and you have to respect your opponent. Well, and I think the implication too is that Robert Duvall actually sort of admires Michael Douglas because the film wants us to know that Robert Duvall has taken shit, you know, from pencil pushers at the police department. And, and you from, know, from his, his battle axe of a wife. Yeah, from his right? wife, all his life. And, you know, he's been quiet about it, but this guy was mad as hell and decided he wasn't going to take it anymore. Yeah, so the last couple shots of the movie are Duvall sitting at Michael Douglas's old house talking to his daughter just with an admiring look in his face. Yeah, moments after he's shot a guy dead who did not even have a real gun (laughs) and so the film is trying to make Robert Duvall out to be this you know sort of wholesome like patriarch in this scene you know this wholesome presence who makes everyone around him feel safe and he actually just comes off totally sociopathic (laughs) and it ends a close up of a TV playing an old video playing an old home movie of Michael Douglas playing with his daughter and yeah you know had the Cold War not ended maybe we could have just continued this beautiful this beautiful moment. But. Yeah, I remember the, the halcyon before time when we were engaged in a constant missile buildup that threatened to annihilate the human race. Whatever happened to that? <laughs> that said, I, I do agree with Roger Ebert. Falling Down does a good job of representing a real feeling in our society today, and it would be a shame if it is seen only on a superficial level. Ugh. I'm with you. We're the same, you and me. We're the same, don't you see? We are not the same. I'm an American. You're a sick asshole. What kind of vigilante are you? I am not a vigilante. I am just trying to get home to my little girl's birthday. And if everybody will stay out of my way, then nobody will get hurt. Fuck you! Who the fuck are you? Are you fucking with me? I am just disagreeing with you! In America, we have the freedom of speech, the right to disagree. I don't know, all this talk of like middle-aged malaise had me thinking about Frank D'Angelo again, and I feel like we should probably talk about him on the podcast again at some point. I think it's been a while since he's come up, uh, so I think you're going to have to reintroduce (laughs) him to many of our listeners. I'm guessing there's kind of 10 to 15,000 people listening to this who have no idea who that is, because, you know, while the OGs uh, may remember, I think he's more of a Michael and Us season two kind of character. Yeah, we did an episode a long time ago called Real Franksters, where you and I went to see one of his movies at the Italian Contemporary Film Festival. We went to the opening of it. He was there. He was there. Daniel Baldwin was there too. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't that a great night? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Frank D'Angelo is this Toronto-based beverage mogul. His company is D'Angelo Brands. He used to have a, a brewery called Steelback. His, his big thing was he had Cheetah Energy Drink, which... It's like a failed Red Bull. Yeah, and uh, he had this commercial that really made him, well, not famous, but semi-known where... It was him interviewing Ben Johnson, the disgraced Olympic track star who I believe had done some doping. The commercial has him saying to Ben Johnson, so uh, Ben, uh, do you uh, do you cheetah? And he goes, yes, 
I cheetah all the time. (laughs) And Frank D'Angelo was just making these incredible movies. Uh, Barry Sherman, the late pharmaceutical billionaire, would apparently just like pay for for all of Frank's enterprises. Yeah, and Frank is one of those uh, type of rich people where, you know, it's not enough for him to be rich. He has to have all these kind of side hobbies where he's like, he's a singer and he makes like shitty music. I've seen him in concert. (laughs) He has has a late night talk show. Yeah, late night talk show. He makes all of these movies where he stars in them and they're incredible. Imagine uh, the guy who has the poster on their wall where it's that Edward Hopper painting Nighthawks, but it's like Tony Soprano and Tony Montana and, you know, uh, (laughs) Marlon Brando as the Godfather. Yeah, he has it non-ironically. He's probably seen a few episodes of Sopranos and he's one of those people that thinks like it's a show about like super cool guys who you're supposed to admire. So yeah, he made all these incredible films. You should really seek them out, folks. Real Gangsters, No Deposits, Sicilian Vampire. Featuring, by the way, a rotating cast of what b-stream celebrities fading stars i mean the funniest one was sicilian vampire has james Kahn in it <laughs> which is probably the biggest star he ever got like he's had a lot of stars uh margot kidder paul sorvino martin landau daniel baldwin michael perret a ton of people James Kahn cited Sicilian Vampire in his divorce proceedings as an example of like... As a reason why the divorce happened. Well, because, you know, his wife spent all of his savings and now he had to do degrading movies like <laughs> Sicilian Vampire. Okay, one more one more Sopranos reference, which is actually helpful here. Mm-hmm. If you want to know what these movies are like, they're all like the movie Christopher Moltisante makes that has a Baldwin in it. They're all Cleaver. Uh, it is Daniel Baldwin, in fact. <laughs> right, right, just right. makes it even more perfect. <laughs> It's Saw meets Godfather 3. (laughs) (laughs) If you lived in Toronto, you were aware of these films because, well, not just Toronto, Canada. There would be bus stop ads and billboard ads for like The Neighborhood starring Frank and Franco Nero and Martin Landau just all over town. Hockey Night in Canada, the biggest show in Canada, would have commercials for these films. Full page newspaper ads. Yeah, and Will for a while would treat, you know, Frank D'Angelo movies as kind of immersive theater because, you know, the theater that would play a lot of these movies, I guess he owned a restaurant across the street. Yeah, the Forget About It Supper Club it was called. (laughs) It was called Forget About It. Another tra- another tragedy. I think it, it might have gone before the pandemic, but it is closed now. And it was such a great restaurant because it felt like a Frank D'Angelo themed restaurant. Lower middle brow Italian food, but you go in and it's got Frank's posters everywhere. Frank's music is and playing. And sometimes he would be there after the film, right? Well, yeah. If you saw his films at the Italian Contemporary <laughs> Film Festival, you know, you'd go and then you'd go there. And then, you know, a, f- a few tables over, there he'd be with his cast, <laughs> like, you know, with Franco Nero right next to him holding court. And then I'd be like, well, I'm going to take my glasses off now because I don't want him to recognize me. <laughs> well, there was that time where we were walking down the street uh, where the where the theater is and there was a poster for one of his movies. And I'm like, all right, well, let me get a, a photo of you in front of the poster. And so I took this photo where you were just like kneeling down and pointing at the poster and smiling. <laughs> Tweeted the photo out. I don't think anything else was like said about it. I don't think you said anything mean about it. Don't think there was a caption. And within half an hour, he just replied and called you a stalker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The movies were not great, folks. Um, I mean, I liked them. I thought they were quite charming. No Deposit is the one you should see. And I really mean it. Check out No Deposit. You've never seen anything like it. After Barry Sherman's passing, there was a certain there was a certain decline in quality. Like he made one called The Joke Thief, where it's like 70 minutes long and a third of it is just he recorded stand-up acts. There's an amazing movie he made called The Last Big Save. The plot of it is so fucking funny. He plays... 
this retired NHL goalie. You know, he's been off the ice for 15 years, but then the coach, played by Danny Aiello, comes to him one day and says, it's game seven of the Stanley Cup. We need you back in net, Joey. (laughs) Only you can win the game for us, which hilarious premise. And I love that Frank cast himself as a goalie because you don't. (laughs) I mean, yes, you do need skill to be a goalie, but he doesn't. (laughs) And two thirds of the movie, maybe even more, is just a hockey game, just a shinny hockey game that he filmed. (laughs) And you're sitting there. This is supposed to be the big game. It's the big game. It's filmed at like Weston Arena in Toronto. (laughs) And you're just sitting there looking at this and it's so boring. It's just an ordinary game. And, you know, between periods, it cuts to Danny Aiello talking to like the the sports commentators and they've clearly improvised their dialogue. And it's like, Joey Bird's keeping them in the game. And even that, even filming an entire hockey game and just presenting it wasn't enough to get it to feature length. So the credits roll at an incredibly slow pace and then it ends with a music video of Frank singing the good old hockey game. (laughs) And that was before the pandemic. And obviously the pandemic has put a halt to Frank's rigorous production schedule, but I'm worried he may never come back. Barry Sherman has passed away. The last couple of movies weren't particularly well received. I mean, he was pretty deflated that night that we saw the, what was it? The, what was it called? Making a deal with the devil <laughs> at the Toronto, at the, <laughs> the Italian film festival. I'm worried he's not going to come back. And that makes me really sad. I I hope he does. If we are to live in this world that we live in, where we just have this, you know, hideous aristocracy, I think they should be making movies like this. I mean, so many people are sort of disenfranchised by the forward march of history. For some people, it's the Cold War ending and they've lost their sense of identity (laughs) and their job. can't make cruise missiles anymore. For some people, it's their billionaire patron passes away and... (laughs) Yeah, a global pandemic happens and the bottom falls out of the B-Stream energy drink market. (laughs) All of a sudden, you can no longer pay Chris Christopherson's rate to do half a day on a movie. (laughs) Well, that was fun. I promise we'll talk about some politics next time. Fucking you. I'm going to go to the road!